And now, coming to you from an undisclosed location. It's the Novus Ordo Watch Trapcast. You've gotta be kidding. Habemus Papa. You can't make the stuff up. Well, folks, looks like the wheels are coming off, huh? As we enter 2024, the Vatican II Church, the modernist sect masquerading as the Catholic Church, is sinking further and further into chaos. But don't worry, Novus Ordo Watch and Tradcast are here to sort it all out for you. Greetings and Happy New Year, and welcome to Tradcast 37, long overdue and finally here. Now that it's 2024, in about two months, on March 13th to be exact, Jorge Bergoglio, aka Pope Francis, will begin his 12th year on the chair of well, not of St. Peter, but uh, of John the Twenty-Third. Yeah, that's really true. Someone pointed this out to me years ago uh, on Twitter, I think, that the false Vatican II popes are really all successors of John the Twenty-Third, Angelo Roncalli. Because, let's not kid ourselves, their religion starts with Roncalli and his wicked Second Vatican Council. It is the Alpha and the Omega of the new religion that calls itself Catholic, but isn't. If you want to know the real Roman Catholic religion, read the magisterium of Pope Pius XII and his predecessors. But this new thing that's been around since Angelo Roncalli usurped the papal throne on October 28, 1958, who knows what religion that is, but it's definitely not what for 1900 years was known as Roman Catholicism. Now, Roncalli, as John XXIII, placed heavy emphasis on the signs of the times as a justification for the new orientation, the new theology that would prevail at Vatican II. And it's one of the things they always appeal to when they have to defend novelty, when they have to justify some new thing that goes contrary to the tradition of the Church. Oh, well, we have to be mindful of the signs of the times. You know, So therefore, we must now have all these new ideas. And a good example of that in action is Francis' doctrine on the death penalty, which he proclaimed in 2017 and inserted into the Universal Catechism in 2018. The Novus Ordo Catechism's revised paragraph 2267 now reads as follows. Quote, recourse to the death penalty on the part of legitimate authority following a fair trial was long considered an appropriate response 
to the gravity of certain crimes and an acceptable, albeit extreme, means of safeguarding the common good. Today, however, there is an increasing awareness that the dignity of the person is not lost even after the commission of very serious crimes. In addition, a new understanding has emerged of the significance of penal sanctions imposed by the state. Lastly, more effective systems of detention have been developed, which ensure the due protection of citizens, but at the same time do not definitively deprive the guilty of the possibility of redemption. Consequently, the Church teaches, in light of the Gospel, that the death penalty is inadmissible because it is an attack on the inviolability and dignity of the person, and she works with determination for its abolition worldwide." Unquote. In this absurd catechetical paragraph, you can see that the supposed signs of the times are used as a data source for sacred theology, a so-called locus theologicus. By doing that, they have opened a door that shrewdly allows them to introduce new revelation into theology, and that is exactly what we see there with regard to the death penalty. In 1864, Pope Pius IX condemned the following proposition, quote, Divine revelation is imperfect and therefore subject to a continual and indefinite progress corresponding with the advancement of human reason. Unquote. That's the syllabus of errors, error number five. Notice the determining factor in Bergoglio's teaching on the death penalty is not conformity with moral principles deduced from reason or divine revelation, Rather, it's some supposed increasing awareness and a new understanding that are responsible for this shift in church teaching. That is quickly smoothed over, though, with the phrase, in light of the gospel. Well, apparently, the church needed the increasing awareness and understanding of sinful humanity before it could figure out what the gospel really teaches on the matter. And it's amazing how quickly that awareness came. Just think about it. Pope Pius XII in the 1950s knew nothing of it when he reiterated that the state has the right to put a capital offender to death in expiation of his crime. And you know who else didn't know anything of it? St. Dismas, the good thief. Yeah, when he was hanging on the cross after his conversion, he rebuked the bad thief with these words. And I'm using the Monsignor Ronald Knox translation here to make it a bit easier to quote and understand. Quote, what, he said, hast thou no fear of God when thou art undergoing the same sentence? And we, justly enough, we receive no more than the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing amiss. Unquote. And that's from St. Luke's Gospel, chapter 23, verses 40 and 41. Yeah, so if we want to talk about capital punishment in light of the gospel, we can. But anyway, I'm not trying to turn this into a discussion about the morality of the death penalty now. I just wanted to give an example of how the signs of the times have been used since John the 23rd as a shrewd way of introducing all kinds of errors into what is supposedly the Catholic magisterium. 
Now, Roncalli first used the phrase signs of the times, which comes from Matthew 16.3, by the way, in the bull he used to convoke the Second Vatican Council on December 25th, 1961. It's an apostolic constitution named Humane Salutis. And, of course, it's linked in the show notes for this episode, which you can find at trapcast.org. Simply scroll down and click on the link for Trapcast 37. Anyway, in that document, John Twenty-Third said, quote, Indeed, making our own Jesus' recommendation that we learn to discern the signs of the times, it seems to us that we can make out, in the midst of so much darkness, more than a few indications that enable us to have hope for the fate of the church and of humanity, unquote. <laughs> Boy, did he get that wrong, huh? Yeah, the prophets of doom he sneered at during his Vatican II opening speech, Gaudet Mater Ecclesia, the following year, have long been proved right. But anyway, it's time we took a look at the gospel passage where our Lord speaks about the signs of the times. So let's turn to St. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 16, verses 1 through 4. Quote, And there came to him the Pharisees and Sadducees, tempting, and they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. But he answered and said to them, When it is evening, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, today, there will be a storm, for the sky is red and lowering. You know then how to discern the face of the sky, and can you not know the signs of the times? A wicked and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, and a sign shall not be given it but the sign of Jonas the prophet. And he left them and went away. Unquote. It's pretty evident, and also confirmed by traditional Catholic scripture commentaries, that our Lord was talking about the signs that pointed to his being the true Messiah, the messianic prophecies being fulfilled, the fullness of time having come, the scepter of Judah having been taken away, the lame walking and the blind seeing, and so on. All those things, all those signs of the time were pointing to him as being the promised Messiah. Now, for the future, especially for the end of the world and the time just before his return, our Lord also foretold that there would be, again, certain signs then to herald his second coming. And you can read about that in uh, Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21. But those signs, of course, are not what John Twenty-Third was talking about. No, he simply hijacked the phrase and used it as an advertisement for aggiornamento, his program of updating the church. And in case you're wondering how that's going, well, you can go to novusordowatch.org anytime and take a look. Anyway, I do think that our Lord's admonition regarding the signs of the times, especially when combined with his enumeration of the signs that will precede his second coming, also speaks to our present time. Because just like back then when the Pharisees had so many proofs of our Lord's divinity, and his messiahship, and yet asked for a sign, it seems to me that today there are so many people still refusing to accept and always asking for yet more proof concerning what is right in front of their face, that Jorge Bergoglio, 
Francis is not the Pope, and the organization he runs may be a lot of things, but it is certainly not the Roman Catholic Church founded by Jesus Christ. Those who are continually waiting for just one more thing before they're willing to accept that, one more sign that they need to leave the false church of the Second Vatican Council and become St. Evacontists, are, in my opinion, like the Pharisees of old that kept tempting our Lord for a sign from heaven when, as a matter of fact, they really had all the evidence available to them, but simply weren't willing to admit it. And you know what happened then. In the end, they rejected even our Lord's miraculous resurrection from the dead. At this point, folks, the Vatican II Church has officially authorized the blessing of sodomite couples. Oh yes, with a thousand nuances and disclaimers and whatnot. But can you not see what is going on there? Slowly but surely, they are opening that door to hell further and further, crack by little crack. And for each individual crack, the Novus Ordo apologists will have their arguments until in the end, everything has been turned upside down, just like with the death penalty. That didn't come overnight either. It started with Vatican II and the incessant talk about human dignity. Then came John Paul II and his catechism in 1992, which essentially said that while permissible, capital punishment should not be used. Then came the encyclical Evangelium Vitae in 1995, in which John Paul II said that cases in which execution is permissible are so rare as to be practically non-existent. Then came the second edition of the New Catechism in 1997, which incorporated the doctrine of Evangelium Vitae. Then came Bergoglio with various addresses over several years, beginning in 2013, in which he railed against the death sentence before he finally declared it to be inadmissible in 2017 and then changed the Catechism accordingly in 2018. And now, of course, he's already working on outlawing even and morally condemning even life sentences, because according to him, they're a hidden death penalty. So now they're at the point of blessing same-sex couples as couples. Couples, I might add, who are considered such precisely because they habitually commit acts with each other that are so depraved that even demons cannot stand to see them take place. For more information, please read St. Paul's Epistle to the Romans, chapter 1, beginning at verse 24. Now, look, I totally understand that people are reluctant to abandon what for the longest time they thought was the Roman Catholic Church. After all, outside the Catholic Church, there is no salvation, and a Catholic must be in union with the Pope and his bishop, and so on. Got it. But please understand, by becoming a state of a contest, you're not leaving behind the Catholic Church, of which Pope Pius XII was once the head. Rather, you're breaking with a false church that contradicts the Church of Pius XII, that wants no part with the religion of Pius XII, that would never want a Pius XII to reign over it. We state of Acantists are essentially the Catholics of Pius XII in exile. We totally believe in the Catholic Church, one holy Catholic and apostolic. And it is because we believe in that church and in the institution of the papacy 
that we are Sedevacantists now, because if the religion of Pius XII and his predecessors has any meaning, any objective validity, and obviously it does, then the Novus Ordo religion of our day cannot be the Catholic religion because it is obviously not the same thing. And you, dear Recognize and Resist Trad, also recognize that because you are resisting it. The Catholic Church, of which Pius XII was once the Pope, teaches that the sort of garbage that emanates on an almost daily basis from the Novus Ordo Magisterium cannot come from the Catholic Church. We therefore have no other choice but to conclude that the authorities behind that magisterium are not endowed with the authority of Jesus Christ, which necessarily means they are not true popes. To say anything else would destroy the church's teaching authority, would destroy the papacy, would make a mockery of Christ's promises of assistance to his church, which we might add includes that whatever is bound by the Pope on earth is also bound in heaven. Yes, I know that leaves a whole lot of difficult-to-answer questions, and those are legitimate to ask, but... If we will not even draw the most obvious conclusion about our current state of affairs, how can we hope to find answers to any other questions? And this reminds me, by the way, of the parable of the rich man and Lazarus found in uh, St. Luke's Gospel, chapter 16. The rich man, if you recall, ended up going to hell, and Lazarus, the poor beggar whom the rich man had refused to feed, went to heaven. Enduring unspeakable torments, the rich man begged Abraham to send Lazarus to his surviving family members so that they would repent and not also end up in hell like him. And what did Abraham say? Let me quote the last three verses. So it's Luke 16, 29 through 31. Quote, And Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, No, Father Abraham, but if one went to them from the dead, they will do penance. And he said to him, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they believe if one rise again from the dead. Unquote. And why is that? Because in the final analysis, the problem was never a lack of evidence. The problem was a stubborn will. They just didn't want to believe. They didn't want to assent to what was clearly before their eyes. And so it was not a matter of the intellect so much as a matter of the will. See, you cannot convince him who does not want to be convinced for whatever reason. It may even be a good reason. Right? For example, I don't want my children to be scandalized. Okay, that's a noble motive, not wanting your children to suffer scandal. But even though that is a good motive, the point is it's not good enough to deny what is right in front of you. Bergoglio is a false pope. Now, I know that one of the popular arguments in our day, and we just saw it again recently on some semi-trad website, one of the popular arguments is that, hey, we don't need to know what's going on in the Vatican. 
right? Hundreds of years ago, people didn't know the Daily Vatican News. They didn't know what magisterial documents were being published. Heck, the average peasant in 1350 probably didn't even know the name of the Pope. But while all of that is true as far as it goes, it is beside the point. See, the problem at hand is one of objective fact, regardless of who knows about it. That objective fact is that since the 1960s, what appears to be the official magisterium of the Pope, of the Roman Catholic Church, has promulgated serious errors, including heresy, harmful disciplinary laws, false saints, sacrilegious liturgical rites, invalid sacraments, and so on. All things which we know from traditional Catholic teaching are impossible for the Church to do, for a true Pope to do. Many of these false teachings and evil laws had previously been condemned by the Church in her official magisterium, so that we are left with a genuine contradiction that must be resolved. That is the problem in a nutshell. Whether you choose to know about it or not has nothing to do with the fact that there is something to know, or to ignore if you so choose. So this idea that you should just turn off the news as if knowing about what's going on were the problem and not that which there is to know about is totally misplaced. And by the way, that don't-look-at-it approach is also not consistent with what our Lord taught us. Once again, we're back to the signs of the times. Our Lord said, When therefore you shall see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, he that readeth, let him understand. Then they that are in Judea, let them flee to the mountains. And he that is on the housetop, let him not come down to take anything out of his house. And he that is in the field, let him not go back to take his coat. That's Matthew 24, verses 15 through 18. Our Lord didn't say, when you see the abomination of desolation, just don't look at it. Pretend it's not there. Most people wouldn't even know what it is. Your ancestors never saw it either, etc. No, our Lord said, when you see the abomination in the holy place, get out, flee to the mountains, run for the hills. What does that mean? Now, I'm not a scripture scholar, so I won't pretend that I know what our Lord meant precisely. But it seems to me that this could very well mean that we need to leave what used to be the holy place, which is the Catholic church buildings of old, and flee to where the true Catholic Mass is offered now, underground in caves, so to speak, in odd places, in private homes, in hotel rooms, in warehouses, in unofficial churches, precisely where the Mass has been offered by real Catholic priests for decades. And we ought not to delay either. We are not even to take the coat we've left in the field. In any case, I guess for some of the semi-trot commentators to argue that we should just tune out what's happening in the Vatican, I guess it shows a kind of desperation on their part. They're out of answers. When their advice is, just don't look at it, you know they've hit rock bottom. And now let's look at some recent news stories. 
And forgive me, please, but when I say recent, I mean from the last 12 months or so. That's because there is so much happening so fast that you're just forced to skip over stuff for the time being and then come back to it later. But let's start with something very recent. On January 3rd, 2024, The Pillar reported Italian priest excommunicated after calling Pope usurper. That was uh, the headline. Now, here's uh, what they wrote. Quote, The Diocese of Livorno in northwest Italy said January 1st that Father Ramon Giudetti had violated Canon 751 of the Code of Canon Law at a Mass on New Year's Eve at his parish of San Ranieri in Guastice, with his refusal of submission to the Supreme Pontiff and of communion with the members of the Church subject to him. The diocese said that Livorno's bishop Simone Giusti had issued a decree declaring that the 48-year-old priest had, as a result of committing the schismatic act, incurred latte sententiae excommunication, unquote. You know, I find it interesting how quickly the Novos Ordo hierarchy can react when they really want to. That Novos Ordo priest who denounced Francis as a Jesuit Freemason linked to world powers and anti-Pope usurper, those are direct quotes, said that on December 31st, and it took mere hours for the diocese to issue a declaration regarding him the very next day. I find that impressive, but not surprising. You see, in a case like this, they have to act fast because there is one thing, and one thing only, that really threatens their revolution, and that is if you question the legitimacy of the authority behind it, if you question the legitimacy of the hierarchy that perpetrates it. Why? Because all their strength, all their power, all the sway they have over souls is entirely dependent upon the belief that they are the Roman Catholic hierarchy, and specifically, of course, that Francis is the legitimate pope of the Catholic Church. So they cannot tolerate anyone saying he's not the pope. And that's what we see here. This priest said it, boom, he's gone the very next day. Imagine, for example, if the Swiss guards and the Vatican police became convinced that Bergoglio is not in fact the Pope and the monarch of Vatican City, but an anti-Catholic usurper. How do you think that would go for the Argentinian squatter in the Vatican guesthouse? Probably not that well, so they cannot let that happen. Now, the funny thing, of course, is that given Vatican II theology, how meaningful still are concepts like schism and excommunication. I mean, these people believe that schismatics and even heretics are part of the body of Christ, that schismatic bishops are legitimate shepherds in the flock of Christ. They're allowed to offer mass in historic Catholic churches. They are part of the people of God, enjoying sister church status. They're an incomplete, but nevertheless quite real communion with the Catholic Church. They are an enrichment to humanity and, of course, all children of God, who, by the way, has also willed schismatic religions to exist. So, what does any of this matter? 
Well, you know, you can't have it both ways. You can't have, on the one hand, uh, oh, schism and excommunication and bad and hellfire, and then Vatican II ecclesiology on the other. Okay? You can't have it both ways. Next story, a novus ordo bishop from Brazil has uh, clearly been reading Francis. I'm talking about the retired bishop of Cornelio Procopio in Parana. His name is Manuel João Francisco. Last April, he presided over some interreligious ecumenical ceremony during a meeting of the Episcopal Conference of Brazil, and Vatican News reported some remarks he made concerning the meaning and significance of such ecumenical celebrations for him. Here's what he said, and this was reported in the Portuguese edition of Vatican News on April 26, 2023, and I'm using a computer translation here. Quote, They reflect, they meaning the ecumenical celebrations, they reflect the communion between the various religions and of all humanity. All religions are expressions of God and all seek to do good and spread good. We can and must come together and work for peace, for humanization, to create a world in which we can live to the full. Unquote. That right there, folks, is apostasy. Not just heresy, it's apostasy. What this false bishop just expressed there completely overthrows the Roman Catholic religion. You might retain an outer shell of Catholicism there, but the substance will be gone. This is what the Masons have been working on for hundreds of years, to turn the supernatural religion of Roman Catholicism into a naturalist religion of humanity. For a long time, they've wanted to naturalize the Catholic religion, meaning they've wanted to empty it of its supernatural salvific content so that it would no longer stand in the way of their humanistic religion of the worship of man. And when you keep that in mind, then you become attentive when you hear John Paul II say that, for the church always lead to man, and that man is the way for the church, as he did in his 1979 encyclical Redemptor Hominis. And you pay even more attention when you then hear Francis say that man is the way for all religions. Yes, he said that on September 15th at the conclusion of the Interreligious Congress in Nur Sultan, Kazakhstan. And the link to that uh, is in the show notes. Now, as far as man being the way for the church and for all religions, here's a quick reality check on that from the Gospel of St. John. Our Lord said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. That's John 14, 6. All forces that are not at least compatible with Christ and his church are ultimately working for the Antichrist, consciously or not. They're helping to prepare the way. Chief among them are the Freemasons and the apostate Jews. Their ideology, their philosophy, their program for this world is utterly antithetical to Christianity. It's literally anti-Christ. And that's not surprising, 
since all false religions are ultimately the spawn of the devil. But in order for them to get the Catholic Church out of the way of the Antichrist, it was clear that they would need to attack the papacy, because that is where the perfect solidity of the Catholic religion is found, in the chair of St. Peter. So they need it in some way or another to attack and neutralize the papacy. But then the papacy enjoys the protection of Almighty God. That's why Pope Pius IX said the following, and you've heard me quote this before uh, in his encyclical Inter Multiplices, number seven, quote, The most deadly foes of the Catholic religion have always waged a fierce war, but without success, against this chair. They are by no means ignorant of the fact that religion itself can never totter and fall while this chair remains intact, the chair which rests on the rock which the proud gates of hell cannot overthrow and in which there is the whole and perfect solidity of the Christian religion. Unquote. So the papacy enjoys a special divine protection and assistance because it is God's work, not man's. The papacy is not a human invention. It is not a human institution. So, by God's own design, no one can bring down the papacy, just as no one could harm our Lord, until the moment when he willed it, when he allowed it, when he withdrew that protection. Remember, the gospel speaks in various places about how the Jews wanted to stone our Lord, or throw him off a cliff, or attack him in some way, and he always escaped. Right? He went through their midst. He hid himself, etc. It wasn't until his hour had come that he would allow himself to be harmed. Remember, he said that his life was not being taken from him, but that he was laying it down of his own free will. In John 10, 18, our Lord says, No man taketh it away from me, but I lay it down of myself, and I have power to lay it down. And so too for his mystical body. That's what St. Paul, I think, was getting at in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, where he speaks of the katechon, that mysterious restraining force that holds the Antichrist in check for a time until God wills it to be removed so that the mystery of iniquity can prevail for a little while. In an address given on September 14th, 1956, Pope Pius XII said, quote, History gives clear evidence of one thing. The gates of hell shall not prevail. But there is some evidence on the other side, too. The gates of hell have had partial successes. Unquote. Now, if that restraining force that holds back the Antichrist in 2 Thessalonians is the Pope, the papacy, then what we have seen since the death of Pope Pius XII begins to make sense. In the 19th century particularly, the popes again and again warned of secret societies and diabolical sects waging war against the Church. In the show notes for this episode, you'll see a link to a Novus Ordo Watch post that quotes a number of papal encyclicals from chiefly the 19th century warning of conspiracies being devised against 
the Catholic Church and against the chair of St. Peter in particular. Let me give you just one quote from Pope Leo XIII. Quote, against the apostolic see and the Roman pontiff, the contention of these enemies has been for a long time directed. The pontiff was first, for specious reasons, thrust out from the bulwark of his liberty and of his right, the civil princedom. Soon he was unjustly driven into a condition which was unbearable because of the difficulties raised on all sides. And now the time has come when the partisans of the sects openly declare what in secret among themselves they have for a long time plotted, that the sacred power of the pontiffs must be abolished, and that the papacy itself, founded by divine right, must be utterly destroyed. If other proofs were wanting, this fact would be sufficiently disclosed by the testimony of men well-informed, of whom some at other times, and others again recently, have declared it to be true of the Freemasons that they especially desire to assail the Church with irreconcilable hostility, and that they will never rest until they have destroyed whatever the supreme pontiffs have established for the sake of religion, unquote. That's from the Encyclical Humanum Genus, number 15, published in 1884. In our time now, we can see the tragic fruits of the Masonic plans against the Church and the Pope. Realizing that they could not bring down the papacy by attacking it directly, they came up with a plan to deprive the Catholic Church of a true pope for decades by ensuring that only false popes would be installed, since false popes obviously won't enjoy the divine protection. And that's what they did. Folks, I don't know how they did it, how they got most to go along with it, but just look at the results. It's obvious that somehow they succeeded. But let's not be scandalized by that, as if that meant the defeat of the church or even of the papacy. The apostles and disciples were scandalized by our Lord's passion and death because they did not understand. They did not savor the things that are of God, but that are of men, as our Lord said to St. Peter in Mark 8, 33. So that first Good Friday and Holy Saturday, they thought now it was all over, all irrevocably lost. Boy, were they wrong. What appeared to be the great defeat of Christ, our Lord turned into his greatest victory against the powers of hell. The greatest crime ever committed in human history, he turned into humanity's greatest blessing. The execution of God, he turned into the redemption of mankind. Can you imagine what our Lord will turn the apparent death of his mystical body into? You know what I think will be one of the supernatural fruits of this frightful passion of the church? It's just my opinion, so it means nothing. But I thought I'd share it. I think the passion of the church will merit the mass conversion of the Jews. Because the conversion of the Jews, which is prophesied in Romans 11, it will happen, is such a great and tremendous effect 
which only a cause that is proportionate in supernatural magnitude could bring about. Right? The greater the thing you ask of God, the greater the sacrifice must be that you make for it. And obviously, I'm not talking about sacrifices apart from our Lord's sacrifice on the cross, but united to it, because apart from it, nothing has any supernatural value before God. So it seems to me that considering how great of a thing it is for God to bring about the conversion of the apostate Jews, especially in our day when they seem as far away from Christ as ever, it stands to reason that only a sacrifice of the greatest supernatural value could affect that. And what better fit than the mystical passion of the church? But you know what? We got a little off track here. <laughs> we were talking about the Brazilian Novos Ordo Bishop. Remember the Brazilian Novos Ordo Bishop who said that all religions are expressions of God. Now, that is modernism to the core and very compatible with Bergoglio's Abu Dhabi heresy that God wills a diversity of religions. Now, this Novos Ordo Bishop uh, in Brazil, he also said as we quoted earlier, that we must create a world in which we can live to the full. And I wanted to say a few things about that, because our Lord also spoke about living to the full. And here's what he said about it. Quote, I am come that they may have life and may have it more abundantly. Unquote. That's in St. John's Gospel, chapter 10, verse 10. But our Lord was not chiefly talking about the temporal, natural life, right? I mean, Christ didn't raise everyone from the dead back to this mortal life, only a few, like Lazarus, the daughter of Jairus, and uh, the son of the widow of Naim, and maybe a few others, I don't recall. But likewise, Christ didn't cure all the sick in Israel, only many of them. And besides, those who were cured, well, at some point probably fell ill again, and in any case, they all certainly died eventually. And those he had raised from the dead died again. Our Lord's mission was not primarily one of humanitarianism. He didn't come in order to fill us with every earthly good. On the contrary, he preached detachment from the things of this world and treading the way of the cross self-denial. Why? Because it is necessary. It is necessary to obtain eternal rewards, to obtain perfect happiness that lasts forever and that no one can take from you. But with the apostate naturalism preached by that Brazilian bishop, all the supernatural is gone. And that's why they're turning to social justice causes, so-called, because their religion has nothing else to do. They're not about saving souls. They're about saving the planet, so to speak. They don't want to convert souls so they can be saved from eternal damnation. Their concern is working together with the rest of humanity to make the world a better place. Again, so to speak. Well, I got news for you. It doesn't matter how good and just of a place you make this earth, after a certain number of years, eventually, everyone will die. Temporal happiness is temporary. 
it's going to end. And therefore, it can never make you truly happy because you know the day will come when you will no longer have it. Now, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't work to improve society. We should. But it can only be a secondary goal subordinated to the primary goal, which is to exit this world in a state of sanctifying grace and thus be saved eternally. We are responsible first for ourselves and then secondly for everyone else, starting with those closest to us, family members, godchildren, friends, and so on. Yes, in a nutshell, you can say the Christian's entire life on earth is a preparation for death. Our first goal, before anything else, is to make sure we die a holy death. Because if we fail in that, nothing else we did in life will matter. If we end up in hell, it won't matter how many people we helped in life, how many children we saved from abortion, how much money we gave to charity, or even how many people we helped convert to Catholicism. But how will we ever die in a state of sanctifying grace if we do not first have the faith, if we do not believe what God has revealed? But without faith, it is impossible to please God. We read in Hebrews 11.6. And now look at what these apostates, like Francis and that Brazilian bishop, have made of that. God wills all religions. Uh, other religions are an enrichment to humanity. We're all God's children. All religions are an expression of God. Our differences are necessary. Who cares? God loves everybody. What an insult. What an insult to the one who said, he alone is the way to the Father. What an insult to the martyrs who said, no, we will not offer incense to Caesar. We will not participate in a false religion. We will not acknowledge the king as the head of the church. And what an insult to him who said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with thy whole heart and with thy whole soul and with thy whole mind. Believing what God has revealed and rejecting what contradicts divine truth, that is part of what it means to love God with our whole mind. The great error of this age, Pope Leo XIII said, is that, quote, regard for religion should be held as an indifferent matter and that all religions are alike. This manner of reasoning is calculated to bring about the ruin of all forms of religion and especially of the Catholic religion, which, as it is the only one that is true, cannot, without great injustice, be regarded as merely equal to other religions." Unquote. That was from the encyclical Humanum Janus, number 16. The ruin of the Catholic religion is precisely what we've been seeing ever since they started with ecumenism and interreligious dialogue, which places all religions on an equal level. And now they're at the point where they're saying that God desires many different religions to exist, and they're all a richness for humanity and all that claptrap. In fact, in his address to a delegation of the United Association of Humanistic Buddhism on March 16th, 2023, Francis said that he hoped, 
quote, this educational pilgrimage will lead you, guided by the thoughts of your spiritual teacher Buddha, to a deeper encounter with yourselves and with others, with the Christian tradition, and with the beauty of the earth, our common home. Unquote. Yes, he did also mention Jesus Christ and the Incarnation in his address, but presented it as merely the distinctive approach to the divine of Christians, as simply one conviction among many possible options. And that is exactly what Pope Leo condemned, making all religions look equal, as if the true religion of Christ were merely one more religion among many from which to choose. If you're still not convinced that this whole interreligious fraternity movement is going to culminate in the arrival of the Antichrist, maybe listen to what Cardinal Charles Bowe said during the Synod on Synodality. Bowe is the Archbishop of Yangon, Myanmar. On October 23, 2023, he preached a homily at St. Peter's Basilica in the Vatican, and here's what he said, quote, The only way to save humanity and create a world of hope, peace, and justice is through the global synodality of all people. We pray that the Catholic Church, under the leadership of Pope Francis, will bring the entire human family into the long march of healing our world and our planet, ultimately leading us to a new heaven and a new earth. Unquote. Wow. That is a mouthful. So, Mr. Bow wants humanity to be saved. That's nice. Except if he really wanted that, he'd be working for the spread of the true Catholic religion first and foremost. No, he's interested in a different sort of salvation, one of an earthly type. Like so many of his co-religionists, his concern is to make the world a better place. Peace and justice, yes, they are good and important things, but not if people then go to hell. If you're eternally damned, it won't matter to you if you experienced peace and justice in this world. Bo wants healing for our world, for the planet, with Francis at the helm. Now, the only one who can heal our world is the one who created it. And he has already revealed to us how we ought to live our lives, what should concern us, what need not concern us, etc. But our Lord didn't preach that all religions should work together to create heaven on earth. He also didn't preach fraternity, peace, and dialogue at all costs. For example, he said specifically that his disciples would be hated and persecuted by the world, and that to follow him, we would have to take up our cross and suffer with him. And he pointed out that to be faithful to him, we might even have to give up everything and be at enmity with our own parents, siblings, spouse, or children. And he made clear that only he who perseveres to the end will be saved. This idea of an earthly paradise of human fraternity, interreligious coexistence and peace among all as the fruit of interreligious dialogue and prayer and respect for individual conscience, this as the goal of our human existence is not the gospel 
of Jesus Christ, but very much contradicts it. It is apostasy and reminiscent of how Esau sold his birthright for a bowl of lentils. These people, who once had the faith, at least when they were baptized as infants, have squandered their divine sonship for the pipe dream of an earthly paradise. And yeah, Francis is right there with him, with this cardinal bow. In 2021, he also talked about a naturalist heaven on earth. You can find all about that in the link I'm going to put in the show notes. All right, ladies and gentlemen, it's time we finally took a quick break. There's lots more ahead. When we come back, we'll hear from the remnants Michael Matt, from Catholic Answers Jimmy Aiken, and we'll play a fun game that revolves around Francis right here on Trapcast 37. So don't leave. We'll be right back. Trapcast. It's not just a podcast. It's, it's a, a Trapcast. Ignore this podcast at your own risk. Tratcast is a production of NovusOrtoWatch.org. We watch the Vatican II Church so you don't have to. Go to NovusOrtoWatch.org, NovusOrtoWatch.org, and see for yourself that the Vatican II Church is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Here we are, back again. Trap casting like there's no tomorrow because there just might not be. All right, folks, finally, we're going to play another fun game. And I say another because you may recall that the first game we played was in Tratcast 31, released on November 10th, 2021. And that was a quiz, a really tough one, actually, where you had to guess whether the quote I gave you was something said by Pope Francis or the Dalai Lama. And yeah, a lot of people found that quiz very difficult. And for those of you who missed it, I'm including a link in the show notes to that quiz, which I recently made available as a standalone video. It was a total of six quotes, I think, and some were from Francis, others from the leader of Tibetan Buddhists, and you really could not tell, just from pondering what was said, which of the two non-Catholic leaders said it. But anyway, 
This time, we're going to be playing a slightly different game. It's going to be a fun fill-in-the-blanks game where I will give you a sentence written by Francis and I will leave out one word or phrase and you have to guess what word or phrase is missing. Now, of course, this will be multiple choice, so it won't be too difficult. For each sentence, I will give you four possible answers. Got it? Number one. The path of fraternity is long and challenging. It is a difficult path, yet it is the anchor of blank for humanity. Here are your four multiple choice options. A. Peace. B. Dialogue. C. Respect. Or D. Salvation. In other words, did Francis say the path of fraternity is long and challenging, it is a difficult path, yet it is the anchor of peace for humanity? Or the anchor of dialogue for humanity? Or the anchor of respect for humanity? Or the anchor of salvation for humanity? Right, so I'm not going to give you the correct answer now. I'll wait till we're through with all 10 and then I'll give you the answers at the end, okay? Next one, number two. All of us are blank because all of us have the Holy Spirit. Your multiple choice answers are A, divine, B, saints, C, Christians, or D, spiritual. In other words, is Francis saying all of us are divine because all of us have the Holy Spirit? Or all of us are saints because all of us have the Holy Spirit? Or all of us are Christians because all of us have the Holy Spirit? Or all of us are spiritual because all of us have the Holy Spirit? Number three. God is Father and blank. Your multiple choice answers are A. Son. In other words, is Francis saying God is Father and Son? Or B. Spirit. Is Francis saying God is Father and Spirit? Or C. Mother. Is Francis saying God is Father and Mother? Or D. Brother. Is he saying God is Father and Brother? Number four, God cannot be God without blank. A, love, God cannot be God without love. B, man, God cannot be God without man. C, transcendence, God cannot be God without transcendence. Or D, dynamism, God cannot be God without dynamism. Okay, number five. I do not go to the doctor, I go to the blank. Your multiple choice options are A, which. I do not go to the doctor, I go to the which. Or B, sorcerer. I do not go to the doctor, I go to the sorcerer. Or C, naturopath. 
I do not go to the doctor, I go to the naturopath. Or D, pharmacist. I do not go to the doctor, I go to the pharmacist. All right, so that was five. We said we're gonna do 10, so I got another five. How you doing, by the way? Is this fun? I'm having a blast. Okay, number six. Today, the experience of the encounter with blank is a sign of the times. Today, the experience of the encounter with blank is a sign of the times. Here are your options. A, creation. Today, the experience of the encounter with creation is a sign of the times. Or B, consciousness. Today, the experience of the encounter with consciousness is a sign of the times. Or C, fraternity. Today, the experience of the encounter with fraternity is a sign of the times. Or D, diversity. Today, the experience of the encounter with diversity is a sign of the times. Okay, moving on to number seven. With regard to the speed of information, which provokes relational blank, the amen is a sort of provocation to go beyond cultural uniformity to give fullness to language with respect for every person. By the way, I apologize for this garbage, but it's Francis. Here are your possible options. A. Tension. B. Accompaniment. C. Veracity. Or D. Imminence. Let me read that again. With regard to the speed of information which provokes relational blank, relational tension, relational accompaniment, relational veracity, or relational imminence, the amen is a sort of provocation to go beyond cultural uniformity, to give fullness to language with respect for every person. I see you didn't expect this game to be that difficult, did you? <laughs> All right, let's uh, go to number eight. An impeccable argument can indeed rest on undeniable facts. But if it is used to hurt another and to discredit that person in the eyes of others, however correct it may appear, it is not blank. Here are your options. A. Truthful. Okay, such an argument is not truthful. That would be option A. Or option B. Such an argument is not credible. Okay. C, fraternal. Such an argument is not fraternal. It's used to hurt others. Or D, such an argument is not Christian. So A, truthful, B, credible, C, fraternal, or D, Christian. Number nine. See, almost done. I know this is painful, but look, I'm suffering too, okay? So... Number nine, every form of violence inflicted upon a woman is a blank against God who was born of a woman. Every form of violence inflicted upon a woman is a blank against God who was born of a woman. A sin against God, that would be option A or option B, 
a blasphemy against God, C, an injustice against God, every form of violence, or D, a betrayal against God. A, a sin, B, a blasphemy, C, an injustice, or D, a betrayal. Every form of violence inflicted upon, upon a woman is, which one of these? Against God, who was born of a woman. And finally, number 10. The blank sins are the sins of the flesh. The blank sins are the sins of the flesh. Here are your options. A, most serious, the most serious sins are the sins of the flesh. Or B, least serious, the least serious sins are the sins of the flesh. Or C, most consequential, the most consequential sins are the sins of the flesh. Or D, most interesting, the most interesting sins are the sins of the flesh. All right, that was uh, 10 statements, all by Bergoglio. And now we'll proceed, and I'm going to give you the answers, okay? So we'll go through uh, these statements again, and this time I will tell you what he actually said. The correct answer for number one is D, salvation. Francis said, The path of fraternity is long and challenging, it is a difficult path, yet it is the anchor of salvation for humanity. And he said that in a video message to mark the second International Day of Human Fraternity on February 4th, 2022. Number two, the correct answer is B, saints. All of us are saints because all of us have the Holy Spirit. And uh, Francis said that during an in-flight press conference returning from Armenia on June 26, 2016. Next, number three. The correct answer is C, mother. God is father and mother. Francis said that in an interview with the Italian Jubilee publication Credere, made uh, publicly available on December 3rd, 2015. Number four, the correct answer is B, man. God cannot be God without man. That was said uh, during a catechesis at uh, one of his general audiences on June 7th, 2017. Number five, the correct answer, believe it or not, is A, witch. I do not go to the doctor. I go to the witch. Francis said that aboard the plane to Chile and Peru on January 15th, 2018. I don't know after how many martinis he said that. Number six, the correct answer is D. Diversity. Today, the experience of the encounter with diversity is a sign of the times. He said that in an address to participants in the general chapter of the Cistercians of the Common Observance on October 17th, 
2022. And number seven, the correct response is C, voracity. With regard to the speed of information, which provokes relational voracity, the amen is a sort of provocation to go beyond cultural uniformity to give fullness to language with respect for every person. Number eight. The correct answer is A, truthful. An impeccable argument can indeed rest on undeniable facts, but if it is used to hurt another and to discredit that person in the eyes of others, however correct it may appear, it is not truthful. Yes, that's what he said in his message for World Communications Day, January 24th, 2018. Number nine. The correct answer is B, a blasphemy. Every form of violence inflicted upon a woman is a blasphemy against God, who was born of a woman. Yep, he actually said that in a sermon on the solemnity of Mary, Mother of God, given January 1st, 2020. And lastly, the correct answer for number 10 is B, least serious. The least serious sins are the sins of the flesh, according to Jorge Bergoglio, a.k.a. Pope Francis. He wrote that, said it, and wrote it in the interview book, A Future of Faith, co-authored with Dominique Walton, published in 2018 by St. Martin's Press, New York. It is found on page 173 or 174. All right, so how did you do? And more importantly, how much fun was this for you? I think it was a boatload of fun. I mean, at this point, Francis has said so much and so much piffle at that, that it's really not difficult to come up with a quiz like that. Tradcast. All right, ladies and gentlemen, let's move on to Michael Matt and The Remnant. The Remnant is a popular recognize and resist newspaper here in the United States, and Matt is its editor. They have a lot of online content too, especially articles and videos. If you read The Remnant regularly, you will find that they can't quite seem to figure out if they believe that the organization headed by the man they believe to be the Pope is the Roman Catholic Church, the indefectible Ark of Salvation, outside of which no one can be saved, or a pseudo-religious, humanistic, man-made new church that serves the devil, has set up a false mass in place of the true mass, is a diabolical counterfeit of the Catholic Church, and has a Pope who may very well be the Antichrist. Yeah, I mean, it's a tough call, isn't it? <laughs> I've seen different columnists writing for the remnant say different things on that, and uh, either way, Matt seems to be fine with it. For more on that, uh, check the show notes for the Novus Ordo Watch article Denouncing New Church, Another Theological Train Wreck from the Remnant. And also, please listen to Tratcast number 33, which discusses that in more detail. What I have for you now is a montage of sound bites taken from various videos of Michael Matt put out by The Remnant over the last 
I don't know, few months, perhaps going back even a year or two. See if you can make sense of what Michael Matt is saying about the Roman Catholic Church. Is this a good church or a bad church? Indefectible or has it defected? Is it necessary for salvation or a danger to your soul? Is the fact that it's dying a good thing or a bad thing? Can we trust this church or not? Is it the spotless bride of Christ or the whore of Babylon? Should we want to be embraced by it or should we fear its embrace? And so on. I think you get my drift. So let's go ahead now and listen to nearly five minutes of Michael Matt on the Catholic Church or whatever church he's talking about there. Oh, wait. If you're driving, you may not want to listen to this now because uh, you're probably going to get dizzy. But hey, it's your call. Here we go. I hate the re- I hate facing the reality of my beloved church as a baptized cradle Catholic. It's horrific. What we're all looking at right now is the infiltration of the Catholic Church at the highest levels. Any synodal talk of blessing gay unions signals, in other words, a sea change, that the Catholic Church no longer takes seriously her own moral teachings, prohibiting cohabitation, sex outside of marriage, and fornication. It can only mean that the Catholic Church doesn't forgive me, but literally doesn't give a damn if I go to hell, in which case, what's the point of the church? Or, number two, the church no longer believes in hell. This is the end of the Catholic Church. At the same time, the Novus Ordo Church is dying. The Catholic Church, for the most part, has stopped talking about the four last things, death, judgment, heaven, and hell, from the pulpit ever since I was a child. Just an embarrassing little period where the Catholic Church and her human element really lost her way. That's what's happening. The church has lost its way. It's in the hands of little men who are going to fail. How dare they come out and tell us that we should leave the church, that we should be driven out of our mother, out of the, out of the arms of our loving mother. We will never leave the faith. We are on their side. I am on the side of the gay and lesbian folks who are being misinformed, disinformed, and lied to by my church. Something terrible came out of that council and destroyed the church, destroyed the mass in her human element. The church is signing its own death warrant, humanly speaking, but more importantly, it is making an evil Faustian bargain with the builders of a new world order to be deprived of Holy Mother Church, of her embrace, of her grace, of her sacraments. Do you know what that means? We have to love the church enough to stand with her, enough to suffer for her. We know the church will rise again. And when Christ saves his church, just make sure you're still there. You're still in the church, no matter what, when he comes back and saves his church. Well, at the end of the day, we have no intention of letting Francis drive us out of our own church. Francis is the one who has to go, not us. So we will oppose him with everything we have, and we will stay in the church. The point of this conference is to make sure that each and every one of us, when God intervenes and saves his church, which he is certainly going to do, the point of this conference is to do everything we possibly can to make sure we are in the church when he saves it, that we don't leave the church. 
Because we know there are people in the Vatican right now who would like nothing better than for us to leave. They've been trying to push us out for a long, long time that we are not going to leave the church no matter, no matter what happens, friends. We have to be part of that. And we have to make sure that someday somebody tells the story of the traditional Catholics who remain faithfully in the arms and bosom of Mother Church through the worst crisis in the history of the church. That's us. Are we going to become discouraged and just leave the church? The church right now, if you think of it in terms of Holy Mother Church, is being scourged in a way I think we'd be hard-pressed to find any precedent for in history. That's our mother being scourged. What would you do if your real mother would, was being scourged, your actual physical mother was being scourged? You wouldn't leave. You wouldn't go off and start another family somewhere with a new mom. You got to stay and do whatever you possibly can to comfort her. For our mother, now that she's suffering as she is, we're not going to go anywhere. This is part of the diabolical disorientation that Sister Lucy spoke about. We are never, ever going to surrender, and there's nothing on this earth that could make us abandon the faith of our fathers. Nothing. The little remnant of believers in the catacombs, that he is still in charge of his church, that he has not abandoned us, that we are not alone, that we have bishops and priests, high-ranking cardinals now, who are saying, go get him. We stand with rightful authority, and we wait for God to work through the rightful authority in the church to correct his church, to bring the church back to where she, where she, where she should be, where she must be, because she's divine. And God's going to save his church, not us. All right. Thank you very much. Michael Matt clarifying what he believes about the Catholic Church. Now, I'm sure that someone out there will say now, hey, come on, Matt clarified it. It's the human element of the church that's the problem. That explains it. But wait a minute. Matt can't just make up his own theology and then still claim to be a traditional Catholic. Here's what Pope Leo XIII taught concerning the nature of the church. Quote, As Christ, the head and exemplar, is not wholly in his visible human nature, which Photinians and Nestorians assert, nor wholly in the invisible divine nature, as the Monophysites hold, but is one from and in both natures, visible and invisible, so the mystical body of Christ is the true church only because its visible parts draw life and power from the supernatural gifts and other things whence spring their very nature and essence. But since the church is such by divine will and constitution, such it must uniformly remain to the end of time. If it did not, then it would not have been founded as perpetual, and the end set before it would have been limited to some certain place and to some certain period of time, both of which are contrary to the truth. The union, consequently, of visible and invisible elements because it harmonizes with the natural order and by God's will belongs to the very essence of the church, must necessarily remain so long as the church itself shall endure. Unquote. That's from the encyclical Satis Conitum, paragraph 3. And further on in the same text, paragraph 10, Pope Leo XIII sums up, 
quote, Therefore, the church is a society divine in its origin, supernatural in its end, and in means proximately adapted to the attainment of that end. But it is a human community inasmuch as it is composed of men, unquote. I think that Matt is quick to blame what he calls the church's human element simply as a rhetorical fig leaf meant to euphemize the defection of the Vatican II Church. Because if you consider all the things that Matt ascribes to the church's human element, like doctrines, laws, saints, sacramental rites, marriage annulments, and so on, there is virtually nothing left to constitute the divine element. In 1879, Father William Barry published a book entitled The Sacramentals of the Holy Catholic Church, or Letters from the Garden of the Liturgy, and it bears the imprimatur of the Bishop of Nottingham, England. On pages 29 and 30, we read the following, quote, The Incarnation is an abiding fact on earth, in the Church, and in the Blessed Sacrament. There is a divine and a human element in the Church, just as there is the divine and the human nature in Jesus Christ. Its divine element is its infallibility and its sacraments, or, in one word, the papacy. Its human element, its individual human members." Unquote. There is no question that one can theoretically distinguish the human element from the divine element in the Catholic Church, but the Church does not exist in elements. In other words, you cannot separate the one from the other and say, oh, well, the human element can defect, but the divine element can't. No, it's precisely the Church as such, human and divine, that cannot defect. Certainly, individual Catholics can defect, but not the supernatural society founded by Jesus Christ that we call the Catholic Church, and which has human and divine elements. So, the fact of the matter is that Michael Matt preaches a defected church. He preaches a defected church. He tries to get around that charge of defection by blaming it on the human element, but as we just saw, that is a cop-out that is theologically unworkable. Dear Mr. Matt, just figure it out already. Is the organization headed by Jorge Bergoglio the Catholic Church or not? If it is, then it is indefectible and has the assured assistance of Almighty God. Then you ought not to be opposing or resisting it, nor can you accuse it of lying to the world, of misleading the faithful or leading souls to hell. If, on the other hand, the organization headed by Jorge Bergoglio is not the Catholic Church, why are you in it? And why are you telling others to remain attached to it? Why, then, do you accept Bergoglio as Pope? And why do you claim that Christ will save it? And lastly, if you really can't make up your mind, if you can't figure it out, that's fine, but then please do the world a favor and stop talking about these issues. Look, this isn't that difficult. Someone who thinks that a vacancy of the papal office is worse than a clear defection of the papal office has obviously not understood the papacy or the Catholic Church. Now, don't get me wrong. 
neither of these scenarios is desirable, either the long-term vacancy or the defection. However, a defection of the papacy is absolutely contrary to the promises of Christ, whereas a long-term vacancy is not. And I know, I know, a lot of people will say rashly that if Sedevacanists are right, then we can never have another pope again. But somehow, it doesn't seem to bother them that if they were right, then there would be no point to having a pope in the first place. In which case, it wouldn't matter if we can never have another pope again. Because then the papacy would just be a grave danger to souls and clearly not of divine origin. Then Catholicism would be false. But because we know and firmly believe that Catholicism is not false, that it alone is the true religion established by God, we must leave all these things we can't figure out to mystery while rejecting the contradictions. So yes, Sedevacantism leaves a number of questions without a clear and certain answer. That is true. But it's always better to have no answer than to have an answer that is definitely false. All right, one last thing, and then we'll wrap it up. Let's briefly tune in to the Catholic Answers Focus podcast with host Cy Kellett and guest Jimmy Aiken to an episode that aired on February 3rd, 2021. Another prominent one is at the resurrection of Jairus's daughter, where he's on the way to Jairus's house, and the woman with the hemorrhage comes up behind him and touches him and uh, is instantly healed. Yeah. And he says, well, who touched me? And Peter's like, dude, there's a crowd. Everybody was touching you. And he says, no, in Luke's version, he says, no, someone touched me because I felt power go out from me. Yeah. I and like how so, Peter talks like a California surfer. Today. Dude. <laughs> well, you know, yeah. uh, d- d- we're translating idiomatically. <laughs> okay, yeah. From the, from the Aramaic. Right. I wonder what the Aramaic for dude was. Yeah, very funny. Did you hear that? Aiken calls our Lord Jesus Christ dude, and Kellett thinks it's hilarious. Dude, the son of the living God, the creator of heaven and earth, the redeemer of mankind, the prince of peace, the adorable infant of Bethlehem, he who will come again to judge the living and the dead, of whose kingdom there shall be no end. Dude. You know, St. Peter called him master. In that very situation, by the way, in Luke 8.45, we read, And Jesus said, Who is it that touched me? And all denying, Peter and they that were with him said, Master, the multitudes throng and press thee, and dost thou say, Who touched me? So we've gone from master to dude. I just wanted to point that out. You see, Catholic Answers is supposed to be this top-notch, you know, fully orthodox and everything by the book type organization. And here you can see how much this insufferable casualness of the Vatican II religion has poisoned so many souls, even people who act as role models and teach others about the Catholic way in all things. Well, the Vatican II church is a fun church, right? I mean, look at their liturgy. Look at the average Novus Ordo Eucharistic celebration here in the United States. It definitely bespeaks a God who is a dude more than the Most Holy Trinity. 
The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, we read in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7. And you know what else? The fear of the Lord is also a gift of the Holy Ghost. And this concludes Tratcast 37. Thank you very much for listening. As always, I hope you found it helpful. And if you did, please don't keep it a secret. Until next time, God bless you.